five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. on the internet all right that was the damned brand new rose generally considered to be the first punk rock single released in england uh pre-sex pistols and uh, i love the damned they were they were a damned good band uh number one they could play their instruments really well and number two they you know they had kind of a unique look Dave Vanny and the lead singer looked like a vampire. Like, I don't think anybody else was looking like a vampire during the uh, punk rock days, the early punk rock days in London. You're uh, watching live 15 Minutes of Flame. This is Robert Phoenix. And uh, if you're listening on the podcast, welcome. You can always join us 9, 11 a.m. Central Standard Time at 15 Minutes of Flame. Dot com if you want to see the the morning music video, which I leave out of the podcast because I could run into uh, some licensing issues with some of the uh, podcast services. So you can actually hear and watch the songs that I'm talking about uh, when I'm uh, talking about them or playing them. So welcome. It's another... Um, Challenging day as a human on the planet as we muddle through the quicksand of global conflict and uh, World War, I guess, what is it, World War V? According to Alex Jones, we're in the Fifth World War. The first one was Napoleon uh, against the rest of Europe. That was one. The Second World War was World War One. The Third World War was World War II. The Fourth World War started with 9-11, and then we we're in the Fifth World War. This is not my uh, classification. Alex Jones came up with it. I could kind of see that. I could see that, but he doesn't. He doesn't take into account Tartaria, which I do think was a world war and the destruction of the uh, Tartarian civilization, which was part of a reset, which of course we're now, and you know, life is really a, uh, a surreal trade-off in a lot of ways because we're not dealing with uh, the vax and the mask and the mandates and all that stuff now. I'm not sure that we're completely done with it. I think they can roll that out anytime they want to. They can just bring it back. Because right now they're in the in the process of theoretically controlling reality. 
at least reality as presented to us through the media. If you walk outside your door and you live in a place where you're not connected to any media, we're really, you know, doing very little to control that part of reality. But maybe there's the the random chemtrail that's in the air, or you, you might be walking uh, within hailing distance of a 5G tower, but by and large, there's still a large portion of our reality and our consciousness that they are not in control of. So sometimes it's good to remind yourself of that, but they're, they've got their claws in this, in this turf. And the gas thing is a big deal. It's a big deal because they can run this up to $15, $20 a gallon, and they can just completely crater this economy. Just absolutely crater it. Food prices through the roof. People won't be able to afford to drive their cars to get to work, right? So goodbye suburbs. Hello, smart cities. If you go back and you look at the last series of uh, big fat bailouts, the railroad companies got a lot of money. And there's a reason they got a lot of money. And it's because they want people to travel by rail. The rail system is going to replace the car system. Now, there will be cars available for people who want to independently travel, but you're going to, you're going to have to be part of a group of people that has that privilege. And you may even be able to get a diesel car because they'll need diesel to run uh, the charging station. Like, like they need diesel to run charging stations. If you go back and you look at their last big world economic forum event, they had to have diesel to run the, the solar panels because it was too cold and too dark. So they won't completely go away from fuel. They'll have diesel. They'll still have diesel for some certain trucks to uh, deliver goods, distribute goods to uh, the elites. They'll get their goodies. They'll get their meat. They'll get everything that uh, the plebes theoretically won't be able to afford. But if you're a good little plebe and you do all the right things and say all the right things and rat out the people around you who are holding out or have some contrarian point of view to the current reality that they're occupying with you, then guess what? You'll get a little reward. You might get a pound of hamburger meat. Ooh. What would you do for a pound of hamburger meat if everybody else is eating bugs and worms? It's like that scene with uh, Joe Pantaleone in The Matrix. I just want to go back into the matrix. Just put me back into the matrix and maybe make me somebody famous, like an actor. There's that scene where he sits down with agent Smith and he says, I know the steak isn't real, but I love it. In my mind, it tastes like a steak and it tastes great. (laughs) Right? That's the scene. He's willing to sell out. Neo and Morpheus for a pound of flesh. Think about that. That's really what that scene is about. It's a pound of flesh. He wants that steak. It's not even real. So this is unfortunately where we're headed. I hate to break the news to you. Um, 
So you better be prepared for it. You better be on your toes. And what will happen to Americans as we continue to slog through this period with unchecked, unabated power and control is that eventually Americans will get frustrated, will get pissed off, and they will fight back, which is exactly what they want. They want, they want the mob to get angry. And then they want to put the boot on the mob. It's exactly what they want. So we're being provoked. This is all one big script, right? This is all one big script. This is all one, one big experiment inside the Skinner box. And they're, they're, they're hurting people into frustration, resentment, anger. Meanwhile, they're treating Ukraine like it's the, uh, they're, 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 you know, you know, I'm not, I'm an only child, so I don't know what it's like to have older siblings or younger siblings. There's a blessing and a curse to that. But I would assume that when the younger sibling or the youngest kid comes around, everybody resents the youngest kid. Ooh, look how good they are. And the youngest kid gets coddled and uh, loved and they gets the coddling and the loving from most of the older siblings. Of course, there's one or two, the older siblings that wants to stick a, you know, a knife in the back of the uh, youngest kid. And the parents, if they're not too burnt out from having too many other kids, which is an important part, right? Because sometimes that happens too. You get a, two parents and they have a large family. Let's say they have three kids. The fourth kid comes around and they're just burnt. And it's like the young, youngest kid is a bit of an afterthought. Like you, you kids, you go raise this kid, you know, Mommy and daddy had a little, little moment there where mommy was not taking her little pill and daddy was not protecting himself. So we're a little burnt out. We're a little trash. We're working all day. You take care of that kid. So sometimes the, the youngest kid can also get scraps. But if mommy and daddy are in a position where they can love the youngest kid, and that's Ukraine is the youngest kid right now. Oh, look at Ukraine. Look how special they are. Oh, Zelensky. Zelensky's like the youngest kid. Oh, look at him. Look at him. He's so brave. He's so courageous. What a man. That's our little Zelensky. Our little Zelensky. We're so proud of him. You go. <clears throat> so, what are you going to do? What are we going to do? Well, we'll talk about that a little bit later in the show. But before we do, I have to get my uh, my wings and go hang out in Ch Chataria. So if, if you're actually listening again to this podcast, you can be hanging out with one of the coolest chat groups on the internet. God, I love that song by the damned Queen Lisa in the house. Wendy says is here. There's Sony CC Jones. What's going on, Fran? Uh, did I get Wendy in there? I did get Wendy in there. Uh, who else do we have? Garrett Brooks. Morning, Garrett. Kelly B. My man, Tom Jordan. What's going on, Tomas? There he is, Thor by the door. The one and only Steve Mercer. Um, 
There's Ryan, the head of the International Brotherhood of Introspective Woodworkers. Uh, we, oh, I don't know what's going on with the chat. I, I, maybe I'll talk to BoxCast so they can give us uh, more liberal privileges. JJ, JJ Rain de Blanc in the house. Who else do we have? Oh, Kamala's in Europe, isn't she? Fucking A. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. Um, DJMC, Michael, morning empath. What's happening? Pondor. It's kind of parallel history style to go vampire punk instead of biker gang punk. I know, right? I don't think there's a cure. Not, I'm sorry. I don't think there's a Depeche mode without the dam, even though they're very different stylistically. Who do you think Dave Gahan was listening to? He was listening to Dave Vanian. Because Dave Gahan or Gahan or whatever his name is, whom I never liked. I never liked that guy. I just never liked him. I think it had something to do with his recessive chin. Um, you could tell he listened to, to Dave Vanian. A couple of Daves. By the way, Dave Vanian is a Libra and Dave Gahan is a Taurus. So they're both ruled by Venus. One, a much darker Venus. Uh, let's see, who else do we have? Anybody see Russia's enemy list? To be San Marino. San Marino was where they had the, uh, I think it was the last Formula One death with uh, Ayrton Senna. Death is in the air. Tamara, Scrubbies in the house. Uh, Rue Nine, rolled or dropped dumplings. I'm not a dumpling guy. CC Jones, I have a bicycle. You better. <laughs> electric bicycles, electric bikes, I think might be a good investment, by the way. It's bad sci-fi from here on out, or maybe not. Courtesy Kabuki Theater. Soiling Greens, I like that. David Hawk, good morning, David. Good to see you here. So how do we not play under the hands? We have to go our own way. We have to, but we're in a race now because they're buying up land like crazy. So, um, and then once you get the land, because they definitely want to move you into the cities because you won't be able to drive. They want to move you into the green prisons. But once you get the land, you're going to have to defend the land. That's the other part, right? You're going to have to defend it. Uh, that's a whole other show. Zelensky is literally surrounding himself with the staff of SNL. Feels like that, doesn't it? Can I borrow your time tunnel? Absolutely. Open access to everyone. Let's see, who else do we have here? We've been talking about this for the last two and a half years, three years. This is, this is nothing new in this, uh, in this corridor. Maurice 100. Good to see you, Maurice. I think we're up to speed here. 
We're up to speed. Oh, Chris and Steve checking in. Um, okay. We're there now. All present and accounted for. All right. So today we're going to go back and revisit what we started yesterday with the neocon family affair. And by the way, I'm uh, of the uh, mind and position that everyone in the Newland family, the Newland Kagan family should be arrested. I think if we wanted to pump the brakes on this descent into chaos, disorder, more global conflict, we, we have to cut the head of the snake, the head of the Hydra. And there's quite a few heads of the Hydra, but the neocon head is a significant head. And I went back and I, I, I watched that just absolute trash piece of propaganda called The Surge. It was a documentary that was produced by Kimberly Kagan. It's about 30 minutes long and it details you know, what they did or what they needed to do in Iraq to rescue a situation that was getting dark and out of control. Guess what? You don't have to go and rescue the situation that is getting dark and out of control if you don't go there in the first place. Think about that. You know, Iraq used to be one of the major oil producers on the planet. People seem to have forgotten that. And the southern oil fields in, your, in Iraq are pumping lots of oil. Who do you think is getting that oil? I don't have to do a 30-minute, 40-minute, hour-long dive into the internet, into Google to try to figure that out. I would bet without any real proof that Genie Petroleum is getting that oil. And Genie is the uh, oil company, petroleum company for Israel. Just like when we went into Syria, theoretically we pulled out of Syria, except for that northern part where they have the oil wells. We defended those. Who got that oil? Probably the same people that are getting the oil from, guess what, southern Iraq. So where's that oil going to? So the surge is just a, just a nasty little piece of propaganda. And you have people like Stan McChrystal and David Petraeus and, you know, all these uh, military industrial complex uh, yes men who love Kimberly Kagan. They love the Kagans. They love the neoconservatives because it keeps them in business. And all these guys have stock options and, and you know, they, they're connected to the company. Now, when I say these guys, I'm talking about the commanders. Not all of them, but a lot of them. They have stock options. They have investments in McDonnell Douglas, Rand Corporation, all these companies that are connected to the war machine, oh, they've got investments in them. And so when there's a war, it's good business for them. And in terms of the military, they get allocated more money. They get better equipment. They get theoretically more money to uh, tell people what to do, order them around. That's part, they get raises, they, they, they don't stay static. And then 
if they're, uh, you know, retired, then they get to go on Fox or they go on CNN and they get to offer their opinions and still make their money from their stock options and everything that's connected to McDonnell Douglas and Rand and all these companies that create the machinery for war. That's why they're into them. That's why the Kagans and that's why the neocons have been hands off because they're good for business. They're good for business. They, they are war racketeers and profiteers. And they have been out of control and in charge ever since 9-11. And I think it's important to remember, just for the sake of recapping, that Robert Kagan, Victoria Noodleman's husband, was one of the authors of A Clear Break, which was the manifesto for the project of a new American century that was written prior to 9-11. And essentially what, what a clear, the clear break doctrine states is that the United States needs to take a more aggressive first strike position in the coming century. And it even talks about events like 9-11 that would allow the United States to take that role because, well, guess what? Instead of being a country that defends its territory, the territory has been transgressed. And so now they have to sniff out the threat and they have to be preemptive. This is sort of like uh, Philip K. Dick's version of thought crime. If there's somebody out there or there was somebody out there that was capable of doing something bad. We got to get in there and do it before they do it. And of course, we've, we've seen that ever since the neocons really got their hooks uh, into this system. And that was through the Bush administration and 9-11. But it was all planned. It wasn't like all of a sudden they had this competition between uh, the Kagans and James Baker. Like, oh, well, what's our position going to be post 9-11. We're going to go with the, uh, uh, the American internationalist version of the Hoover Institute's position, or are we going to go with the, uh, the Bolshevik, Moscow, Tel Aviv, Hoover Institute position, internationalist position? Well, they went with the latter, but clearly the project for the new American century, the clear break doctrine was created in anticipation of 9-11. So was the Patriot Act, by the way. So when it all broke, it was ready to go. The doctrine that allowed them and gave them permission to go into foreign governments, countries who had no business going into and destabilizing them for the sake of safety, regime change, and whatever other resources. So this has been the neocon doctrine. It's been adopted since 9-11, and it's not good. It's got us to where we are today. And you could go into Libya. Like, who is in the Obama administration? Vicky Newland. All the neocons are, you know, the, the infesticons. Let's call them the infesticons. The infesticons are in the Obama administration. They're there. They just go from Bush 
They don't care. Yeah, yeah, we were liberal, but now we're, you know, yeah, we were we were right wing, pro war fascists, but now we're uh, liberal pro war fascists. Yeah, it doesn't matter. So they've got Libya in their rearview mirror. Muammar Gaddafi wasn't doing anything except doing his best to create a sovereign environment for his people. He turned a corner. He'd, he'd become kind of a, 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 an American asset in Northern Africa. You're gone were the days where he was harboring quote unquote terrorists, but that wasn't good enough. And so we have Benghazi and basically regime changed Libya and it's a disaster. And we have all these people that have fled Libya. The refugee crisis is a big part of it. And they're involved in that too, moving people around the globe. This is a really a very well-organized and orchestrated plan to destabilize the entire planet. And these people, the four people I'm talking about are big players. There's more, they're not alone. We're going to get into the granddaddy of the neocons today, but um, Libya. We came, we saw, we killed him. Hillary Clinton's neocon. Make no mistake about it. She can change her spots any any which way she wants. Syria, neocon intervention. They created ISIS. They created ISIL. It was their creation. They created it along with our pal in the uh, Middle East. All those videos and all the phony shit. There was a lot of phony shit. And all those videos emanated from a place in New York City. Hey, New York City, where the Bolshevik Revolution started. Yeah, that's where they came out of was New York. There was a somebody in New York that was surfacing these videos. Some woman. And they were they were fake as hell. I remember one of the decapitation videos where they were using like a pen knife or something. I was just like, are you fucking kidding me? Do you know how long it would take to cut off a neck with a tiny little knife? It was ridiculous. And then of course, all of a sudden they show up in all this new equipment, all these, all these really, you know, brand spanking new Toyotas mounted with, with guns uh, in the beds. And then you had these really bad videos. I mean, the whole thing was just a complete and utter fabrication. But it, get, it allows them to get into Syria, which they're still there, by the way. So they got their hooks into Syria. They get the hooks into Yemen um, through the Saudis. It's a proxy war through the Saudis, but that's part of their first strike doctrine. They want to destabilize Yemen. The color revolutions, they're all connected to the neocons as well. Vicky Newell ran a color revolution. So look at any color revolution post 2000, it's got neocon fingerprints on it. They're a dangerous group and they're, they're, they're virtually untouchable, virtually untouchable. And it's because they've been really good for the war business. And if you go back and you, and you watch the Kay Griggs video, if you don't know who Kay Griggs is, I highly recommend you search out that video. And if you have about five and a half hours, watch the whole thing. I think it might be more than that. But she uncovers a very important part of that video. And the part that she uncovers is that these guys, these generals, 
in the military are deeply compromised. And the, you know, according to Kay Griggs, through her husband, who was, was Major Colonel Griggs, and who spilled the beans to her and everything, he'd get drunk and just tell her everything, is that at a, at a high level that these guys are all queer and they're completely compromised. And there was a name for them called Cherry Marines because they were, they were into like young buck soldiers. That was, that's what they were into. So they're compromised. I mean, look what happened with Petraeus. Petraeus was compromised. You know, he, he, was, he was banging that woman who was a spy. You got busted. Well, if you ever saw Petraeus's wife, you might give him a pass. Let's just say she's one of those borderline sort of he, she kind of personas. Anyway, he got caught in a honey trap. And when that happened, you go back and you look at what Obama did. He wiped out the command in CENTCOM, AFRICOM, like all these guys who were probably more aligned with the United States, Obama just wiped them out. He just pulled them. And he pulled them under the cover of this distraction with Petraeus. And what's weird is Petraeus, was, was he the head of the CIA at that time? I can't remember if it was before or after. But again, compromised. He was having this affair while he was carrying out the orders and the dictates of the neocon uh, intelligentsia. He's compromised. They're all compromised. That's why they're able to do what they do. That's why they're able to run the military. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Kim, that sounds great. If you're a general, if you are a general, and you've been in the military, let's say you're a general, and um, and we're looking at what, 2000, say five, 2005. So let's say you're, you're 60, and you're a general in 2005. That means that you were born in what, 1945, right? So that means that you were probably in the Korean War, possibly, if you were young enough, you were definitely in the Vietnam War. If you were career military and you were a general and you were 60 in 2005, you're in, you're in the Korean, you're in the Vietnam War. So you saw people die. And let's say you were somebody who somehow survived the Vietnam War and you weren't corrupt. And you were still in charge of the, uh, of your troops, but somehow, you know, you were at a point in time where, Hey, I'm going to be out of this game in about five years. I got to cash those, those big stocks, those big military industrial stocks. And this little nitwit who really was a, she was a student. She was a student of Fred Kagan's at Yale. That's what she was. She was a student. And Fred Kagan married one of his students, much younger. And all of a sudden she's got cred. And she's teaching 
military history and strategy at West Point. Never fought in a war, never seen anybody die, at least not in combat service. None of it. But there she is telling these generals what they should be doing. And these are war-hardened generals. And they're sitting there going, oh, yeah. Wow, that's brilliant. Yeah, you're right. You're absolutely right. Wow. You're amazing. How did you become so smart? How did you understand military strategy and history so quickly? Yeah, we're, yeah, we're in. We're in. Good plan. The only reason they're in is because, number one, they're compromised. Number two, they know that they're going to make money off the deal. So it's kind of a, a win-win for them. Yeah, let's go do that. Thank you. And then she trots out of there thinking that she's so fucking smart and so powerful that she can manipulate these men who are the commanders of the largest and most powerful army on the planet at that time. I don't know if that's the case now. And she's just like the little marionette or the pup master for the marionettes and the generals do their little thing. And we get the surge, we get all these preemptive strikes and all these neocon wars. I called them the architects of affliction yesterday and that's exactly what they are. So they're dangerous and they're dangerous for us as a country and they're dangerous for the planet. They have no allegiance whatsoever to this country. If they have any allegiance, it's to another country outside of this country, but they're internationalists at heart. And they used to be liberals and then they're conservatives and then Trump comes in and now they're liberals again. They don't really care. They're chameleons, they're, reptil they're reptiles. They can change their spots or colors whenever they want. And these are the people that have been dictating foreign policy. Really for a while, they, they really came in to uh, power during the Nixon administration. Nixon opens the doors to the neocons. That's where you see Dick Cheney. Roger Stone is a neocon, by the way. Don't kid yourself. He's a neocon. He's in with Nixon. Don Rumsfeld is in with Nixon. So you get the Shabbos Goy neocon contingency there. But eventually you get people like the Kagan family, Richard Pearl. Richard Pearl is, is weird. I, I'm not a fan of Richard Pearl. He's part of that <coughs> whole group that is selling the Iraq war after 9-11, Afghanistan and Iraq, which includes Paul Wolfowitz, John Bolton, uh, Richard Pearl. Elliot Abrams is another character. Elliot Abrams is, is related to these people too. I forget who he's related to, but Elliot, a Elliot Abrams is a spook. He's a dark spook. And they were trying to do something in Venezuela. They were trying to flip and regime change Venezuela. And they sent Elliot Abrams down there to, to run that program. Elliot Abrams was involved in Iran-Contra. So he was in through the, through the Reagan administration. He was one of the engineers around Iran-Contra. So they sent him down to Venezuela. And guess what? They fucked up. They totally fucked up. They had these guys go down there and they were, they were somehow busted by these fishermen in Venezuela. They weren't fishermen. I can tell you that right now. They weren't just guys on a fishing boat. Because if you were, if you were CIA, when, let's just say they're CIA, 
and Elliot Abrams running kind of a subgroup of the CIA. If you're the CIA, you're not going to let some run-of-the-mill fisherman pull you over and then take you into, into port or even call the, the Venezuelan Navy. No, you're going you're gonna to dispatch those fishermen with, uh, what, what's the phrase, without prejudice or with prejudice, whatever, whatever the phrase is. Like, you'll take them out. You'll take them out. You'll take them out. You'll sink their ship. We'll never be seen again. And you do it, you do it quickly. But it was a bad pig's moment gone wrong. Somebody tipped off the Venezuelans. And the fishermen boat weren't just fishermen. They were more than likely uh, the Venezuelan Navy. And maybe, maybe they were disguised as a fisherman boat. And all of a sudden, they pulled out these, you know, these automatic, you know, mounted automatic weapons. Um, but this is what they do. This is the family business. And Elliot Abrams is related to these people. So this is how we got here. And I just showed you four people yesterday, four people, and they're all related. And they're all involved in this thing. They are up to their third eyes in this regime change bullshit. And it has to stop. This is the discussion that we need to have. We need to be able to talk about the neocon influence on American foreign policy and how it's absolutely bringing us into right to the edge of the abyss, both abroad and domestically, right to the edge of the abyss. And the only way that we can be, the only way we can stop from rolling over into the abyss is to remove these people and as quickly as possible. And all these politicians in Washington, like uh, Marco Rubio and Lindsey Graham and uh, Yertle the Turtle, Mitch McConnell, they're all compromised. They're all compromised. You don't think that the Epstein operation isn't connected to the neocons? Well, you bet your ass it is. That's how they compromise people. It's all interconnected. It's an interconnected web of compromise and influence. The degrees of separation between Alan Dershowitz, Glay Maxwell, Jeffrey Epstein, and the Kagans is very, very small. Very small. But we could just talk about the neocons right now because they're the ones that are engaged in the current operation in Ukraine. Of course, Vicki Nuland is now sticking her nose in there talking about, well, you know, we can't let the Russians have these biolabs. Oh, yeah, why not? Because they'll find something. This whole biolab thing, it's like they're there. They've even admitted they're there. You have all these international drug pushers, Merck, Sanofi, uh, was um, uh, Pfizer, they're all in there. Bayer, they're all in there. They all have their little labs inside of Ukraine, Western Ukraine, not Eastern Ukraine. And guess what? They got seized. What are they doing there? What are they working on? What contagions are they cooking up without any kind of oversight?
Now they have to defend the biolabs. Literally and figuratively, they have to defend the biolabs. What a joke. These people are dangerous and they get not enough talk. They get not enough um, attention whatsoever. So I'm doing my part to bring them back up to the surface. Because when you see who they are, their fingerprints are on every failed regime change. For us, not for them. There is no failure for them, by the way. Even a failure like Afghanistan is a win for them. It's a total win. Because you don't think that they're, that the CIA and other groups are still in Afghanistan? Of course they are. They just removed the American military, left everything. But they're still running a covert operation in Afghanistan. They, they haven't left. By the way, I had this client last week. I had, last week was the week of really interesting women clients. I swear to God, I had the most interesting clients last week. And they were, they were all women and like fucking A, really amazing. And there is this woman who lives in New Zealand of all places. And she's really engaged in this humanitarian effort. Seriously. Like some people like talk, this person does. And there's a small ethnic group in Afghanistan, which is very tribal. And they're not Muslims, by the way. And <clears throat> she's trying to protect them and their rights and trying to find a way to, you know, either get them out of Afghanistan, because they're being hunted down uh, by these Muslim extremists. Really interesting person. Um, yeah, so I just brought that up because they're, Afghanistan is still a shit show. Anyway, let's get into the, the granddaddy of all of this. And uh, hopefully we can finish this up today and uh, get on to the Friday forecast. By the way, I was doing, again, some a cursory uh, research into Trotsky. But today, that graphic, that's Leon Trotsky. That's actually from a poster from... Uh, the uh, Bolshevik, just slightly post-Bolshevik period in Russia. That's Trotsky. And Trotsky does go to Mexico. We know that. Partially because Stalin, everybody that was a member of the Bolshevik revolution besides Stalin, they all die except for Stalin. So Stalin didn't want any have any competition. That's That's part of the deal. But Trotsky went to Mexico to start a Bolshevik revolution in Mexico. Yeah, he was there to save his, save his hide, but he was also there to start a Mexican revolution. Oh, yeah. They wanted to flip. So there is a Mexican revolution, and it's the Bolsheviks who are, again, engineering this thing. And there's a commonly held opinion that Stalin went after Trotsky and hit him with an ice pick. That may be true, but based on what I'm starting to, un, you know, untangle with Trotsky and the Mexican revolution, it might've been somebody inside the government of the United States that took Trotsky out. So I'm going to, I'm going to try to untangle that a bit more, by the way, and I've, I've mentioned this Trotsky's granddaughter lives in the United States and she's actually a well-known researcher 
on drug addiction. And I think she um, has worked inside one of the administrations. She might've worked inside the Obama administration or the Bush administration, lives in Maryland, um, has done documentaries. So Trotsky's granddaughter lives in the United States. He had a bunch of kids, different wives. I think that's the only one that is surviving. So she's got grandkids. So Trotsky's grandkids live in the United States. Anyway, let's talk about the, uh, the grand dragon of the Bolshevik, I'm sorry, neocon movements. And that's uh, Norman Potoritz or Podhoritz, depending on how you pronounce his name. And uh, him along with Irving Kristol and um, William Kagan, Robert Kagan's father. These are three of the, the these are three of the the, the, the the capos of the neocon gang. Uh, so he was born January 6th, Norman Potter, it's January 6th, is an American magazine editor, writer, and conservative political commentator. Oh, look who's here. The astrological cat is off the bed. Who identifies his views as paleo-neoconservative. He's a writer for Commentary Magazine, previously served as the publication's editor-in-chief from 1960 to 1995. He's born January 16th in the year of 1930. He's 92 years old, so he's got, unfortunately, that Capricornian longevity. So here's where we see the connection to Ukraine. The son of Julius and Helen Woloner, Potteritz, Jewish immigrants from the Central European region of Galicia, then part of Poland, now Ukraine. Potteritz was born and raised in Brownsville, New York. Potteritz's family was leftist, and his elder sister joined the socialist youth movement. He skipped two grades and attended the prestigious Boys High School in the borough of Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood, ultimately graduating third in his class in 1946. His classmates included the prominent Assyriologist, William W. Halo, and advertising executive, Carl Spielvogel. Following his admission to Harvard University and New York University with partial tuition scholarships, Potteritz ultimately elected to attend Columbia University, where he was granted a full Pulitzer scholarship. In 1950, Potteritz received his BA degree in English literature from Columbia, where he was mentored by Lionel Trilling. That was one of these guys when I was in um, college. Lionel Trilling would always come up. Uh, let's see, American literary critic, short story writer, essayist, and teacher. He's one of the leading U.S. critics of the 20th century, analyzed contemporary cultural, social, political implications of literature. He might have been part of that new school of literature that came out of Chicago, which I fucking hated. Uh, he concurrently earned a second bachelor's degree in Hebrew literature from the nearby Jewish Theological Seminary of America, although Potteritz never intended to enter the rabbinate, his father, who only attended synagogue on the high holidays, wanted to ensure that his son was nonetheless conversant in the intellectual tradition of his people. Okay. As a non-observant New World Jew, though, who treasured the Hebraic tradition, so you can see that they are not, they're, they're not aligned to any one system. Well, we can be a non-observant New World Jew 
or we can be an observant Jew whenever it really suits us. We could go hit the synagogue in the high holy days. We can show up. We can punch our ticket. Uh, and then uh, uh, the rest of the year, we could be committed communist revolutionaries until, of course, we need to be paleoconservatives, in which case we can change our color once again and pretend that we have America's best interests at heart and that the American values especially ones of self-determination or the ones that will assimilate and then will espouse and sell it back to you as long as you go out and destroy some other country and culture in the name of America and defending America's principles and property and prosperity before someone else takes it away from them. This is, this is who these people are. They have no allegiance to anything, none. After being awarded the Kellett Fellowship from Columbia and a Fulbright Scholarship, he later received a second BA in literature with first-class honors and an Oxbridge MA from Clare College, Cambridge, where he briefly pursued doctoral studies after rejecting a graduate fellowship from Harvard. He also served U.S. Army from 53 to 55 as a draftee assigned to the Army Security Agency. So he's in the Army, but is he out there? Like, is he dealing, you know, is he in Korea? My father was in the Korean War. He was in Korea. He didn't see any action, but he was in Korea. The closest my father got to being wounded in the war was, he told me this story. <laughs> Apparently, he was uh, cozying up to this Korean woman in Korea. And he took her to a movie so my father, I guess this is soul, and he takes this Korean woman to his to this movie. And and apparently this Korean woman's boyfriend didn't like the fact that she was seeing this American dude. So they leave the movie theater, and as they go out the exit, which is in an alley, this woman's boyfriend and a couple of his friends there. And they have knives and they, and they, they want to castrate my father, which would have been a horrible thing. Cause I wouldn't be able to be here to talk to you today. So he managed, this is as close to any serious action he ever got into during the Korean war. He managed to somehow get out of that situation. Thank God. He also told me that one time he, um, he watched, soul burn, that there was this fire in soul and it was everywhere. Huge fire, which is like right out of the whole Tartarian playbook, right? He watched it and he said that it was uh, strangely hypnotic, this fire. Strange. Anyway, this guy wasn't there. He's intelligence. He's army fucking intelligence. Potter had served as commentary magazines editor-in-chief from 1960 when he replaced Elliot E. Cohen. Oh, so LED Cohen is another player here. Let's just do a quick look at his page. He shows up. Cohen was a founder and editor of commentary published by the American Jewish Committee. He committed suicide in 1959. That's interesting. During his tenure of commentary, uh, the magazine, a liberal point of view, his editorial position was filled by Norman Potteritz in 1960. 
uh, Neil Kozodi, Kozodoy in 1995, and John Potteritz in 2009, Family Affair. We're going to have to look at Mr. Elliot Cohen, I think, at some point. Uh, Potteritz remains commentary's editor-at-large. He wrote the essay, My Negro Problem and Ours, in which he described the oppression he felt from African-Americans as a child and concluded by calling for a colorblind society and advocated the wholesale merging of the two races, the most desirable alternative for everyone concerned. Can you believe that shit? This guy says, oh, I was oppressed by Negroes when I was a kid, meaning that they whooped his ass. So instead of standing up to them and saying, hey, fuck you, and fighting back and pushing back, he says, well, we got a problem here. So it, let's, let's dilute their gene pool. And let's just make one muddy latte race. Does that sound familiar to you? Does that sound like Barbara Lerner Specter or Barbara Specter Lerner, whatever her name is? Yeah, that's exactly. This, this, this is the Kalergi plan. And he's advocating the Kalergi plan. He wrote that. This guy wrote that. Nobody's talking about this. Like, where are the new, the, the new thought black leaders or the black new thought leaders? Where are the liberals around this? Are you kidding me? Where's Jamel Hill? Where's Ibrahim Kendi? This is fucking racist. And this is the guy who is the granddaddy, the decapo of the neocons. You could come at him from the left or the right. Like, where is Royce White with this? Where is Jason Whitlock with this? They probably don't know about it. They should. This is bullshit. This is... And, this is where we can get to these people. We can get them. Just like they could go back and look at other people's records and other people's um, demonstrations of some kind of racism or sexism or anti-Semitism. It's fair game here. From 81 to 87, Potteritz was an advisor to the U.S. Information Agency. They just get right in right in. You get their claws into the military, the media, big pharma. Look at Rochelle Walensky's dad. Same thing. Same thing. He gets into information systems and he's connected to the CIA, the United States Army, all these front corporations, right? It's just, you look at the tentacles here and, and, and it's like, they're there. They're entrenched. They got our hooks in our system. But I'm looking at one group and one group specifically because this is the group that has brought us to the brink of the abyss. And that's the neocons who could be neoliberals. They could be neo-anything. He was a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute. He was awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom 
by George W. Bush in 2004. The award recognized Potteritz's intellectual contributions as editor-in-chief of commentary, as well as service, as well as serving the Hudson uh, and Cedar Fellow of the Hudson Institute. Norman Potteritz was one of the original signatories of the Statement of Principles of the Project of the New American Century, founded in 1997. The organization sent a letter to President Clinton in 1998 advocating the removal by force of Saddam Hussein in Iraq. Clinton did not do that. They had to wait until the Bush administration. Potteritz received the Guardian of Zion Award from Bar Leon University in May 24, 2007. He served as senior foreign policy advisor to, drumroll please, Rudy Giuliani in his 2008 presidential campaign. The same year he had publicly advocated an attack on Iran. You know, Rudy Giuliani ran for president in 2008. He was trying so hard, so desperately to trampoline from his role of the mayor into the president. And he was using Potterets as an advisor towards that aim and goal. Ridiculous. Potterets' 2009 books, why are, 2009 book, Why Are Jews Liberals? Questions Why Are American Jews for Decades have been dependable Democrats, often supporting the party by margins of better than two to one, even in years of Republican landslides. Potterets is married to author Midge Dechter, and together they have had two children, syndicated columnist and current commentary editor-in-chief John Potteritz and American-Israeli journalist Ruthie Bloom. Norman Potteritz said in early 2019 of his large family and its relation to his political views, if Donald Trump doesn't win in 2020, I would despair of the future. I have 13 grandchildren and 12 great-grandchildren, and they are hostages to fortune. So I don't have the luxury of not caring what's going to happen after I'm gone. So what is he saying here? If he doesn't win in 2020, I would despair of the future. So he's, he's a, a Trump neocon. William Crystal and the Kagans are non-Trump. You know, it's, it's weird, but yet they're all together. They're all in on this thing. Uh, initially a staunch liberal, Potter's moved commentary to the left editorially when he took over the magazine. However, became increasingly critical of the new left and gradually moved rightward by the 1960s. By 1970s, he was a leading member of the neoconservative movement. The only reason he moved to the right is because the right were hawks and the left were doves. They were, anti, they were the anti-war party. In the lead up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq, Potterets argued strongly for military intervention, claiming that Saddam Hussein posed a direct threat to the United States. After 9-11 attack and more than a year before the start of the war in Iraq, Potterets wrote in February 2002, there's no doubt that Saddam Hussein already possesses large weapons of chemical and biological weapons. A fucking lie. So these people are the progenitors of lies. Uh, so he goes after, let's see, what does he have to say about Vietnam? Here, let's see.
in the early 1980s, Potteritz was extremely skeptical that fundamental reform was possible in the USSR and sharply criticized those who argued that U.S. policy toward the Soviet Union should be one of detente in his 1980 book, The Present Danger. Potteritz predicted that the United States was in danger of losing the Cold War and falling behind the Soviet Union as a global power. Later, he would express anger with President Ronald Reagan for not establishing sufficiently strong ties with policies toward the Soviets. Um, this is something that comes up in Antony Sutton. This is the one Achilles heel in Antony Sutton's work in that he sees Richard Pearl, who would become a future darling uh, of the neocons, as somebody who's willing to take on Russia. Because Sutton saw that the Russians and the United States, the, the, the capital, commun the, the com communal capitalists, were in league together. And that as a result of this, the former Soviet Union was gaining power. So he saw Richard Pearl, who would become a future neocon, as somebody who would stand up to this. So the neocons are theoretically uh, anti-Soviet Union. Well, why is that? Because they're from Ukraine. They're from Ukraine and they're from Lithuania. We saw the Lithuanian strain coming through uh, the Kagan family. He comes from the Ukrainian side of things. They don't like the Russians. They don't like the Soviets because, you know, theoretically in their mind, they took over their territory. Well, in actuality, they were aided and abetted by people like Lenin and Trotsky, right? These are the, the Bolshevik party, the revolutionary party, which is essentially what these people, it's weird, right? It's really, they go through this pivot. It's sort of like when, when Twitter was an inner, inner office tool and then decides to become pivot, which is or Twitter rather, which is what happened with Twitter. Twitter, if you don't know, was supposed to be used inner office, inner office communication between people in, uh, in groups, projects, pods, cubbies, cubicles. They say, eh, this isn't really working. We're not really able to get any traction from doing this in terms of, um, you know, corporate business, let's turn it into something else. And so they made a pivot with Twitter. It's like Facebook made a pivot with Facebook. So the neocons were neoliberals, and they were, and they made a pivot. Why did they make a pivot? Because they pivoted towards power, they pivoted towards aggression, they pivoted towards a military industrial complex, because they knew that's where the money was, that's where the greatest amount of power if they could get in control of the United States military, the most powerful military on the planet, then they could run the game. They could run the board. And if they could target the Soviet Union as an enemy, because somewhere in their, in their gene pool, right, they believe that their family or their families got a raw deal from the Soviets, then all the more reason to do it. Potteritz has praised Bush, George W. Bush, calling him a man who knows evil when he sees it and who has demonstrated an unfailingly courageous willingness to endure vilification and contumely in setting his face against it. 
That's like putting lipstick on a pig. He calls Bush the president who was battered more mercilessly and with less justification than any other in living memory. No, that'd be Donald Trump. So then this is uh, him hitching his wagon to Sarah Palin. In 2010, he wrote, I hereby declare that I would rather be ruled by the Tea Party than by the Democratic Party. I would rather have Sarah Palin sitting in the Oval Office than Barack Obama. Really? Why? Barack Obama did the bidding of your little buddies, your, 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 your friends, the family ties with Kagan's. Barack Obama did everything the neocons wanted him to do. Everything. Sarah Palin was fingered by William Crystal to be the vice, president, vice presidential candidate with John McCain. Sarah Palin is an MK Ultra Beta kitten. I've got plenty of evidence around it. And maybe I'll, I'll play Lee Greenwood's um, God bless the USA just to show you exactly what I'm talking about. Donald Trump. Potterets who initially supported Marco Rubio, Marco Rubio, by the way, being a Tea Party candidate. That's how Marco Rubio, a little bubble boy. What happened was the Tea Party was started as this kind of grassroots revolutionary movement, and it was quickly subsumed by, guess who, these people. And it got astroturfed. So the re so you have Marco Rubio running as a Tea Party candidate, and he really wasn't. Marco Rubio was basically a cabana boy. That's what he was. He was a cabana boy and compromised. Just look at him now. He's praising Ukraine and praising Zelensky, and he's supposed to be a conservative. No, he's not a conservative. Potter initially supported Marco Rubio in the 2016 Republican primaries, remarked about the primary campaign. I began to be bothered by the hatred that was building up against Trump from my soon-to-be-new soon set of ex-friends. It really disgusted me. I just thought it had no objective correlative. That is a uh, literature term, by the way. An English professor would use that. They called them dishonorable or opportunists or cowards. And this was done by people like Brett Stevens, Bill Kristol, and various others. And I took offense at that. So that inclined me to what I then became, anti-anti-Trump. By the time he finally won the nomination, I was sliding into a pro-Trump position. He, so you, I was sliding into it. Oh, yeah, that feels good. Which has grown stronger and more passionate as time go, has gone on. Potter says his views, however, have caused him to lose ex-friends who are anti-Trump, saying, well, some of them have gone so far to make me wonder whether they've lost their minds altogether. Of Trump, he argues the fact that Trump was elected is kind of a miracle. I now believe he's an unworthy vessel chosen by God to save us from the evil on the left. His virtues are the virtues of the street kids of Brooklyn. You don't back away from a fight, and you uh, you don't back away from a fight, and you fight to win. That's one of the things that Americans who love him lo uh, love him for that he's willing to fight, not willing but eager to fight, and that's the main virtue. And all the rest stem from, as Klingstein or Klingenstein says, his love of America. I mean, Trump loves America. He backed down from the fight. I don't think Donald Trump has ever been in a fight in his life. Seriously. When he was growing up, 
I don't think he was ever in a fight. Maybe at his little military academy school, he got roughed up a little bit, but I, I doubt if he was ever in a fight. Potter says of his, uh, uh, let's see, what else we have? Immigration. He had been for, uh, uh, thinking unthinkingly pro-immigration because I'm the child of immigrants. And I thought it was unseemly of me to oppose not only what had saved my life, but had given me the best life I think I could possibly have had. However, his views changed later. In 1924, immigration virtually stopped, and the rationale for the new policy was to give newcomers a chance to assimilate, which may or not have been the main reason, but it probably worked. What has changed my mind about immigration, even legal immigration, is that our culture has weakened to the point where it's no longer attractive enough for people to want to assimilate to, and we don't insist that they do assimilate. That's actually true. That was the culture of the pre-war period. You certainly wanted your children to be Americans. So Potter it's, is kind of interesting in some ways, right? He's got this pro-American stance. He's older, so he knows where the bread is buttered. Um, he leans into Trump, but sees that Trump is uh, a, a, an unworthy vessel for God's um, Uh, God's uh, God's mission. But again, he'll go left, he'll go right. He was hardcore left. He helped build the left. He helped build the beast of the left, then he built, built the beast of the right. And he found power inside of conservative politics. And I do think probably somewhere in Norman Potteritz's head that he he realized that he had a good life and he wanted to hold on to it. He didn't want other people to snatch it from him. But at the same time, he's utterly divisive. His son is utterly divisive. His relationships with the rest of the neocons, even though he may or may not speak to Bill Crystal anymore, but they're both into regime change. That's the one thing that links them. I don't think there's any disparate view on regime change. So he's a chameleon. He's a grand chameleon but he's a chameleon nonetheless. He just knows where the power goes. He knows where the power flows. He knows where the bread is buttered, just like the Kagans do. And they're all part of the same group. They're all part of the neocon think tank. It could be neocon, neoliberal. Ultimately, it's there to serve their purposes. Well, Mr. Potteritz, if you're so concerned about America's future, then, then you need to, and your son needs to start writing op-eds to call for the absolute cessation of this war in Ukraine. But they won't, because now it's a war against Russia. And oh boy, we like a war against Russia. This is what Zbigniew Brzezinski was all for. If he was around today, he would be a pig in shit, because Brzezinski hated the Russians. He's Polish, I believe, if I'm not mistaken. I'd have to look that up. Um, so Potteritz, if he was really invested in his point of view, even in the 90s, he's got a son who's basically doing the same thing. They have the power of the press. Start writing articles against Victoria Newland and the Kagans. But they won't. They won't do that, especially now. Because, oh, we can take Russia down, finally, after all these years. So they're banging the drum. They're banging the war drum. At the end of the day, 
it's this group who has sunk their claws into the military industrial complex, the media, to some degree, uh, the uh, pharmaceutical industrial complex, to some degree, but really the former, the media and the military, because they work hand in glove. The media is a propaganda arm of the military, right? And the military supplies content for the media. Look at CNN right now. I bet you their numbers are up because they're covering the war 24 seven. It's the best thing that could happen to uh, CNN. But now they have Putin replacing Trump as the Fuhrer of the planet. So it really brings us to the end of this two day appraisal. And uh, there's probably, there's a lot more I could get into. We could get into Bill Crystal and his father, Irving Crystal. And I could spend the next month untangling the web of neocon influence. The Potterts is a big figure. Fred, um, William Kagan is a big figure and Irving Crystal. Those, those are the, th- those are the Trinity. Those three guys are really the godfathers of the neoconservative mu- movement and all their kids have taken up the mantle. They've, they've taken on the flame of the neoconservative agenda, the project for the new American century, essentially using America's military might to conduct operations for them and their purposes all around the planet. And they've led us to the edge of the abyss. This is really the, I think, these are the crimes against humanity. Hundreds of thousands of lives lost, people maimed, injured in in Iraq, in Syria, in Yemen, in Libya. Our people, their people, the toll in Afghanistan, the immense amount of money sunken into and spent into nearly 20 years of being in Afghanistan. I think it was 20 years. These are the people who engineered those events and continue to this day promulgate and promote the ideas of war in Ukraine, Russia, globally. They need to be stopped. Full stop. They need to be tried for crimes against humanity, treason against the United States of America, lying through their fucking teeth, promoting the post 9-11 doctrine. That includes Dick Cheney, Don Rumsfeld, George W. Bush, all of them, all of them. They need to get the Rosenberg treatment. And these are strong words, but these these are the parasites that have got into the military industrial complex and the media industrial complex, and they need to be removed. They need to be stopped. They need to be stopped right now. And this is the, this is the discussion that we need to have. And a light needs to be shown brightly. They need a laser beam 
on Victoria Newland because she's the one right now that's in the White House, still engaged in this operation with Ukraine. A blinding laser beam. We might have a chance if we can remove these people. Might. It's the only way that I see our way out of this. You have, to, you have to stop them in their tracks. And nobody is brave enough to do it. Nobody will talk about it. Alex Jones won't talk about it. Joe Rogan won't talk about it. Maybe Jason Whitlock through Royce White might talk about it. Nobody will talk about it. I'm talking about it. And it's not that hard. You know what's interesting is when you talk about it in these terms, guess what? You don't blame all Jewish people. You don't. You could look at one group inside of that group who have access to power, influence, propaganda, untold and unlimited amounts of resources and money. It's a small group. All you got to do is target that group. You don't have to carpet bomb an entire group of people. All you have to do is tactically focus on this one group of influencers and their cancerous and toxic hold on this country, this culture, this nation, and the world. And Norman Potteritz may believe somewhere in his DNA that he's a true American and doing the right thing. He is not immune to this conversation and this type of criticism. He needs to go as well. So I hope that you have found the last two days at the very least enlightening and understand who some of these players are and how influential they've been in creating both the neoliberal policy and the neoconservative policy. And then the neoliberal policy when it suits them again. Why don't we get out of here with some uh, Sarah Palin? We got uh, 10 minutes left. I could do a whole show around this track. Okay, so it's going to take us up to what, uh, 1034? Okay. So. Okay, so what's interesting is that when you look at the, oh, oh my God. Okay, I stopped this. It's, a, it's blurry. It's a little blurry, but check this out. This is a rally for Sarah Palin in her presidential campaign. Look at the colors for her campaign. Fucking Ukrainian colors. Look at this. You get that kind of light blue and yellow. Look at that. Yeah. Here we go. Folks who know me, you know that I spent 20 years in the state of Nevada. Country first. These are fucking Ukrainian colors. So this is Nevada. By the way, uh, this is Linda Rothschild right here. Lee Greenwood shows up in Kathy O'Brien's book, Transformation of America. 
He's a handler of uh, Monarch assets. And there's a reason why he's here because Sarah Palin's one of them. Here we go. This is not just my home, it's your home. And remember, what happens in Vegas doesn't necessarily stay in Vegas. The vote you make in Nevada is gonna make history by putting the first woman ever to be Vice President of the United States. <laughs> Governor Palin has asked me if I would sing my signature song, God Bless the USA. I will. This is the 25th anniversary of me writing the song in 1983. It stands for all the veterans here today. God bless you for your service. The military out there defending freedom. And all you people in Nevada who we love. If tomorrow all the things were gone, I'd work for all my life. And I had to start again with just my children and my wife. Thank my lucky stars to be living here today. Cause the flag still stands for freedom. Okay, here's Sarah Palin. Uh, that's her daughter. Now, there's a theory that the kid who I think has Down syndrome is actually Sarah Palin's kid. All right, so watch Sarah Palin here. Look at that. Look at what she's doing there. If you're listening to the podcast, she's doing the, uh, the, what is it? The El Daviolo, the hook'em horns. So she's flashing the sign of Satan here. And her daughter is looking up at her doing it and smiling. She's doing it with their other hand too. You can see it on the left hand. She's got the one that's underneath and she's got the one that's on top. It's the double. She's doing the double Il Di uh, Diavolo, right? Look at that. What a fucking little Satanist bitch. She's just mind control, but she's actively engaged in an occult operation right there. So just to run that back, you've got the colors of Ukraine. Look at that right there, the blue and the gold. Where have you seen that? You've got Linda Rothschild. You've got Lee Greenwood, who's an MK ultra handler exposed in Kathy O'Brien's transformation of the USA, right? transformation of America. Um, you've got Sarah Palin, who's an MK ultra beta kitten chosen by William Crystal to be on the ticket. William Crystal being one of the 
hardcore, hardline members of the neoconservatives, as long as it doesn't relate to Donald Trump, right? He finds her. She comes out of nowhere. That's a crystal pick. And then there she is flashing the Il Diablo signs, clearly participating in a very minor occult operation during the singing of the song. What a world we live in. I just wanted to play that for you. Okay, um, we'll be back tomorrow at 12 noon over on the Friday Farcast channel over on YouTube. And I do post those uh, conversations um, eventually on the podcast side of things. I've been doing that every Friday after we do one. So the last three podcasts, last week with the Crimmies, which was great, that's on all the podcast networks as well as YouTube. Uh, we have the uh, conversation with um, Hans, Dr. Hans Utter, uh, and also with Hattie McCoskey. That's, they're all on, on the podcast distribution network. Tomorrow will be as well. Um, we're, we're having a young woman who has a YouTube channel called Zoom Politicon. Uh, she's going to be on for the first hour. And then after that, I'm going to be, I'm going to open the phone lines. And if you guys want to ask questions or chime in, uh, we'll have a live segment in the second hour. Okay. All right. Use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart to seven what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Have a great day. Uh, don't despair, right? We're going to have to pull together here because it's clear that nobody really has our backs. So we're going to have to have each other's backs to the best way that we can. Um, and share this podcast, if, if you know, share the podcast, share the last two days. If you're on the Apple iTunes site, hit five stars, because that gives me a higher ranking inside of uh, the iTunes podcast. And here on my website, you don't have to hit anything. But in terms of some of these other uh, media platforms, if you can rank my podcast, if you're listening on those platforms, please do that. Um, and please subscribe if you're on some of those platforms as well because I, I need to expand and get the message out more. Share these, share the show the last two days. You know, this is the information that, that people need. They need to understand who's behind these insip, insipid global wars that kill our young men and women, drain us of our assets and bring us to the edge of the abyss. We need to know who's behind these things. And this is the first step. Do your part, share the information. I'm out of here. Bye for now.